Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by both my wonderful co-hosts, Medea Ocher and Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi, you guys. Such a treat. Such a treat to be all together. I know. I feel like we rarely get to do this these days. I know. It's really nice. That holiday holiday feeling. Exactly. <laughs> um, and this week... We're listening to a conversation that I had with the curator and writer Jordan Stein about his book, Rip Tales, Jay DeFeo's Estocada and Other Pieces. Wait, so what is this one about? I think I vaguely remember this title, but I wasn't on this interview. Okay, so this is a book that um, it actually came out last year and it's going into a new printing for next year because I believe all the copies sold out. It was um, uh, it was recommended to be my a uh, lot of different friends. And it, it focuses on Jada Feo, who is an artist. She's best known for her giant uh, painting The Rose, mm. which was right. by the time it was uh, excavated from her apartment in San Francisco, it weighed 2000 pounds. And it had to be taken by a forklift. And um, they could only get it out by sawing off the bay window of the apartment. And the whole reason, actually, that uh, they took it was because she was getting evicted. And I don't know if she would have, you know, thought it was finished exactly, but she worked on it for eight years. Um, but the book, so the so that's kind of the context. But then there's this other piece that she was making at the same time when she was evicted, and that is Estocada. Mm. Um, and that's what this book is focusing on and kind of using as a template for speaking about other artists. So Estocada was um, a piece that Jada Feo was making on the wall of the hallway in her studio. Mm. And it was, it was similarly uh, just full of paint. You know, the rose weighed 2,000 pounds because there was so much paint on it. And this other piece also was just was- like... Is the, Go was ahead. the rose paint or was it concrete? Was no, there, it was paint. It's all it paint. looks, I mean, it's sculptural looking, but it is the reason it is that weight is because of paint. It's wow. because of layer and layer and layer and layer of paint. And um, I guess Estacada did not get as much paint as the rose, but it was impossible because it had been on a page. Jordan, I asked about this because I didn't understand why, she, you know, Jada Fail couldn't have just taken it off the wall. But because it was, stapled directly to the wall and then painted on uh, the paint got so heavy there would be no way to have removed it and it kind of got stuck to the wall so Jada Fail ripped it off the wall and ripped it in all these pieces and then over the next years just took those fragments and worked them and did all these other things with them hmm. um and she's I you know I've always I've been interested in her as an artist for a while but I, I didn't quite realize how just completely unconventional her career was and and how you know even at the end of her life she'd made this one painting that was so known and important but it it wasn't she it it wasn't necessarily going to be preserved you know she she wasn't dying as a genius um the 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 fate of the rose kind of hung in the balance and uh the way she made work was not like on the commercial you know, timetable that right. lots of artists work on today. And um, I was going to say, you know, not to make this too on theme, but that for me, the book, this book is so beautiful and kind of gets at the more, I don't know, esoteric, spiritual uh, aspects of art that are the things that actually make art to me like a very, 
you know, that, that, that make it that where I can see that art is kind of my religion in that mm -hmm. it, it touches a lot of these same questions that, um, you know, even Christianity asks, like, what is the body? What remains? What, what, how can you, you know, at, like the importance of absence? Um, it, it's, it's a really, really beautiful book. And um, I really loved speaking with Jordan about it. Well, I'm excited to hear that conversation. It sounds great. Yeah, same. Let's do it. Great. I'm so happy to be talking to the writer and curator Jordan Stein today. With the collective Will Brown, he's the author of Bruce Connor, Brass Handles. And with Jason Fulford, he edited Where to Score, a collection of hippie-era classified advertisements. He operates the exhibition space Christian Works in the Mission District in San Francisco and has independently organized exhibitions at Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive, Artist Space, Gale Union, San Francisco City Hall, The Glass House, Matthew Marks Gallery, and the Renaissance Society at the University of Chicago, where he formerly served as curator of special projects. He joins me to speak about his latest book, Rip Tales, Jay DeFeo's Estacada and Other Pieces. The book centers on the American artist Jada Feo, who's best known for her monumental 2,000-pound painting, The Rose, which she worked on for eight years, and which, following her eviction in 1965, had to be removed from her apartment by a forklift after the building's bay window was sawed off. At the time, DeFeo was in the process of completing another painting, Estacada, a piece on paper stapled directly to the walls of her hallway. Instead of removing it intact, she ripped the pieces of the work apart and over the next decades reanimated the fragments by way of photography, photocopy, collage, and relief. While Stein documents the many incarnations of Estacada in his book, its mutating quality also becomes a template for writing about other Bay Area artists, including Trisha Donnelly, Ruth Asawa, Litzbacher, and Vincent Fecto, whose work likewise engages with risk, reinvention, absence, ephemerality, and community. Thank you so much for being here, Jordan. So nice to be here. So I'm curious, when did you first come across Estacada? It's curious because it's an artwork that doesn't exist anymore. So to come across it means necessarily to come across a trace of it or evidence of its past life, or in this case, past lives. I was doing some research in Jay DeFeo's archive. She's an artist that I've admired for as long as I've known of her and lived in the Bay Area, which is now almost 20 years. And I was spending time with the terrific caretaker of her archive and a woman who worked with her in her lifetime called Leah Levy. And I was just kind of snooping around, which is how a lot of my curatorial investigations have started in the past. And I wasn't necessarily on the hunt for something that might look and feel and function in the imagination as a kind of shadow rose or opposite rose or play a sort of opposite role toward this masterpiece that everybody knows about. But I was looking at some photographs that were really compelling, and it was hard to tell what the photograph, the series of photographs really depicted. And so I was asking Leah, and she made a kind of curious face and said, well, there's sort of a long story there. You know, these photographs depict the shreds of an artwork that once existed in the studio hallway 
of DeFeo and the morning after the 2,000-pound painting was removed with you know, profound effort and determination. She didn't have time to make a plan to safely remove this other thing, Estacada, so she ripped it off the wall. And just that seemed really strange and intriguing and inspiring, and it was a sort of, that's where everything started. And that's something I, I don't totally get. So why didn't she just take the staples out and take it down safely? Like, why the rip? <laughs> Unlike the rose, which was painted on canvas and attached to stretcher bars, this was a work on paper. But you have to remember that DeFeo was working with very thick paint at the time. So what happened first is the paper went on the wall with staples. And then imagine someone going over it with paint and then more paint and then more paint. And pretty soon the staples are completely invisible and the thing becomes this fleshy kind of lifelike form on the wall. It would be nearly impossible to try to figure out, even for a conservator, how to safely excavate the thing. So she rips it down. Maybe you could walk us through some of the incarnations of what it becomes. Like, how does she then repurpose over many years this artwork? So she takes a number of former, what was Estocada, she takes a number of bits of Estocada and she takes them to her new home, which is just over the bridge in Marin County. And she's been working on the rose for so long that she really doesn't know what to do with herself anymore. And she has high hopes for the rose. She really believes in this, but she's put a lot off. I mean, she hasn't made much other work in the many years that it's taken her to make this colossus of a painting. So she enters a period of what sounds to me, although I was hardly there, like a slightly depressed phase, trying to figure out what to do, living up in a really tiny home and hanging out with the townsfolk. It sounded like a lot of young people who'd hang out on the property and smoke pot and stay up late and things like this. And by her account, the shredded bits of Estocada are under her bed and they stay under her bed for years until they collect enough dust that they are almost transformed by the physical manifestation of time into these other things. And she tells this great story. This is in a lecture that she gave, you know, in the 1970s that's transcribed and in the archive about how she's upset with herself and she can't, she can't stop collecting stuff. And she keeps everything around and bits and pieces of everything she's ever made. And when is there going to come a time when she can just safely and comfortably handle trashing some stuff? She doesn't want anymore. And so she says, I took these things from under the bed and I threw them in the trash can. And then she said, I got up in the middle of the night, I took them out of the trash can. You know? And then she shellacks the dust. So she preserves this age and kind of decrepitude that they've taken on. And then she starts to photograph them. So when she was living in this story department on Fillmore Street, where the rose was excavated, she really wasn't working with a camera at all, but she begins to teach at the San Francisco Art Institute. Her students teach her how to use cameras, and she begins essentially to study the former Estocada with a camera. And she makes unique photographic prints of the work. And then very compellingly to me, she began to hand cut the actual photographs 
and use those photographic bits into brand new collages that echoed Estocada in some way, but essentially became brand new works of art. Yeah, the word that I kept thinking about here was composting, that instead of just disposing with an artwork, you know, she was just taking these parts and making so many over the years, different pieces, really. I mean, although it doesn't seem like the pieces she made from Estacada ever were, were they exhibited or what was the fate of these pieces? The pieces were eventually transformed into an artwork all their own, but composting is the right word. And it's a word that comes up in my imagination all the time. It's a word that really rings true for me with, you know, broadly speaking, what a lot of Bay Area artists have been up to across the last 50 years. If you think about art or life or culture or inspiration as something that feeds the compost heap and then it warms and you turn it around and new things can grow, you can put it back in the garden. This metaphor is hugely important to me and I think to these artists. So the fact that many years later, some original shards of Estocada were actually placed on masonite and became their own work is just one piece of a puzzle that's really more like, you know, a giant heaping pile of compost to me than a series of some things that are finished and some things that are not. It really upends the definition of what it means to finish something, to call something an artwork and to call yourself an artist. How old was Jada Feo when the rose was removed and Estacada was ripped off the wall? She was 35, 36. So she'd spent a number of really important years of her life developing these works. She made a couple of paintings in the early days of making the rose, a couple of other works, but then she really dedicated herself to the rose. And it's just peculiar because Estocada is by all accounts, the only work that she started in something like the last five years of working on the rose. And of course she couldn't have counted on the fact that she was evicted from the Fillmore Street apartment. That's what really inspires her to call the work done and to get it out of the apartment and in a sense out of her life. I really got a sense from reading the book that I hadn't quite understood before, even having read some about the Rose, like what a tremendous risk it was for her. Not just because she's putting so much time into it to the exclusion of making other artwork. You know, I I have a feeling like maybe she wasn't living so much off her work or was living very precariously, but still, to focus so much into one piece, as you write, she puts all of herself into this one piece, but then also that it's such a monumental piece that it's almost an improbable piece for someone who's not famous to make because its scale is ridiculous. There's no assurance it will be conserved. You know, she makes this kind of Hail Mary artwork that um, could have easily not been preserved. And from your book, it sounds like it was hanging in the balance for a long time. In many ways, the rose is a complete disaster. It swallows all the natural light in the apartment. She's using paint that's potentially toxic. She's getting invitations from galleries in New York, far afield, a long way from San Francisco, 
to show work. And she says, look, I'd love to be able to help you, but I'm pretty busy with this one painting. <laughs> so it's fairly unthinkable in today's art world, which is, of course, more complex and demanding. You know, if a gallery were to ask her for a painting for the upcoming art fair season, imagine she says, well, I'll get back to you in six, seven years. To me, this is profoundly inspiring. And one reason why I really look to Jay as an inspiration for what an artist is, because once it left the apartment, it's not like it was roundly celebrated, purchased by a museum, and she went on to have, you know, a wonderful and rich career. It was really in a number of logistical ways, a pain in her side. Shipping the work, taking care of the work, insuring the work. It's amazing to think now, but by the time that she died, the rose was still collection-less. It was being stored, ironically, at the San Francisco Art Institute, where her friend, the artist Fred Martin, had become the president. And after many years, it was essentially behind a false wall to protect its front. But she died like that with the most uh, incredible work she could ever think about making, essentially buried alive. And do you think that influenced then? I mean, I know you said that she was throwing stuff away, you know, but couldn't. But then you write about that when she was living up in Marin, these other pieces she just like kept in a... Uh, barn, basically, and, and let them be exposed to the elements and deteriorate somewhat. Maybe that was out of necessity, but do you think that after that intense experience with this one work that she wanted to find other ways to be where things didn't have the same weight, where she could let go a little bit? Yeah, I do think that's the case. And it's really telling that the next work that she's able to conjure post-Rose is really you know something she could make on her lap if she wanted to. It's with paper and tracing paper and a little bit of collage, but it's really a profoundly delicate work. And the tracing paper on the front of this, of this thing sort of drapes over. She can't quite give up the three-dimensionality of what is commonly perceived as a two-dimensional medium, painting, drawing, collage. But at the same time, it's an incredibly fragile work. And she makes a number of things right around that time, just after, that are relatively small scale and require a different engagement with materials. And the rose was so heavy only because of the layers and layers of paint, right? There was nothing else that was making it 2,000 pounds. That's right. It did become even heavier later in its life when, and we can, we can get there in the conversation, when eventually the Whitney Museum expresses interest in not only attempting to determine if the work is conservable, but then conserving it and working with all kinds of really interesting, complicated people, aeronautics engineers, to build a brand new stainless steel, you know, reinforced structure for the rose to hang on. But DeFeo's dead by that time, right? Yeah, she's gone by then. You know, when we're talking about the composting and the quality of kind of work, feeding other work in the Bay Area, um, it strikes me from the book that there is this certain kind of artist that you write about and a kind of work that you seem to be drawn to that does exist plenty of other places. But I wonder if you do think it's specific in some ways to the Bay Area as being this place that just never had the kind of commercial infrastructure, for instance, that New York had or has, that has had for such a long time that more recently Los Angeles has begun to have. You think that that 
is an essential part of it? Is it also just about a community of artists who happen to have all known each other? I mean, what is the special sauce that's making it happen up there? You're right that there are artists who, like, perhaps like you and me, believe in the compost bin of creativity or something. It's not a temperature that is unique to San Francisco, but I think it is found in abundance here. And I think that that's due to San Francisco's sociocultural position as, you know, a radical, relatively free, on the edge of the United States kind of place, but also because the lack of a robust gallery system. There obviously are museums here, but it's just, it's kind of a slower place. And in many ways, it's a small town. It's famously seven by seven miles. And I think that not having robust art world systems in place really affords artists the chance to take chances. I mean, it sounds kind of simple, but I think that it's true. I think a lot of these artists and many more poets and musicians too, they're not here to become known necessarily for what they're doing in their studios. And that now, of course, these days is harder than ever. But when it was much more possible to be functionally poor, when you could think about living in a building on Fillmore Street like Jay did with your painter husband and Joan Brown, the painters upstairs with Manuel Neri and Michael McClure's, you know, down the hallway... It just, it almost sounds like a fairy tale now. And at the same time, I think we're at risk of romanticizing what that really meant to live on $33 a month or however these folks lived. But I think that San Francisco, historically, the future obviously is unwritten, really attracted the kind of artist who didn't necessarily want to make it, so to speak, but instead wanted to make themselves. And there's a lot of room for self-invention, self-realization, and self-discovery here. And when did you get there and what was your entree into the art world there? Coincidentally, I went to study at the San Francisco Art Institute. I studied art. I moved here in the early 2000s to get an MFA. I was really interested in photography. I can't tell you if I'd necessarily heard of Jay DeFeo. I was 23 years old. I didn't really know anything about anything. And I met a number of professors who became important to me, who were working in photography and beyond. It was critical for me to be around artists and to be around dialogues in art. And eventually I came to learn that the Rose had only very recently, sort of just before I got there, just a few years, been removed from SFAI, from where I went to school. So some older you know, friends that I met were there during this conservation process. And I didn't necessarily think that I would stick around California I'm from the East Coast, but it just became so enchanted with the history. And there's so many artists who have slipped through the cracks, you know. I can't say there are many artists who've made paintings that are 2,000 pounds, who we don't, maybe we don't know about, who need to be discovered and have Whitney retrospectives. But it's really not hard, for better or worse, you know, for someone like me to connect with very amazing, talented artists who stuck around San Francisco and didn't make a significant career because there were very few places for their work to be shown. The work can be very special, very, very worthwhile. But of course, there's the price of the ticket there. Cool. Cool. 
You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Jordan Stein, author of Rip Tales, Jada Feo's Estacada, and other pieces. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Jameson Webster on the line. Jameson Webster is the author most recently of the book, Disorganization and Sex, and she's here to give us a book recommendation. I recently read by Francoise Dalto her case of Dominique, which was translated, although I think it's hard to find. And it is just the most extraordinary document of 14 sessions with, I think, what she would say is an autistic or psychotic adolescent child that she brings out of this stupor into the most unbelievable articulation of his life and his family involvement with basically the Nazis and colonialism. I mean, it's unbelievable. It was um, forwarded by Robert Coles, who was the biographer of Eric Erickson and was a very important person in a certain moment in time in psychology in America. And so for him to read this radical French Lacanian theorist treatment of a psychotic child and then to kind of forward it for a U.S. audience. I mean, you cannot believe that this text existed in the U.S. in the 70s when it was published. So I would recommend that. And he makes these clay figures. He, you know, is completely fragmented and then is like the clearest child at a certain moment because of um, intervention she made. Her first intervention, he says, I have dreams sometime at night that make me feel untrue. And she says, because they say something true about you that you couldn't say, so you made yourself a false person. And he goes, yes, how did you know? And then it starts from there. (laughs) So I would recommend that. So where did you find this book? How did you come to it? I had heard about it. It was kind of legendary. And I read it as a graduate student, but didn't remember much. And then I, because of working on the question of adolescence at this moment, which, you know, because they're having such a hard time, I thought, oh my God, that case. So I went back and reread it and was totally blown away. Was the work taking place within an institute or was it private? Or were these therapies taking place? So this is what's amazing is that Francoise Dalto started what were called Maison Vert, which were clinics and every neighborhood in Paris where anyone could go with their children who had a question and mothers could hang out with children under five and there'd be a psychoanalyst there who they could talk to or not talk to. And I mean, the fact that this existed is unbelievable to me. I mean, a place for people to go with their children and ask a psychoanalyst questions, should you want to, but you also don't have to, you could just hang out and play with the toys. And so he went to this clinic to seek treatment and she ended up seeing him. And it's very cute. Like they have to pay a teller at the front, you know, of the center and then they come back to see Madame Dalto. And I just, nothing like this exists in this country. Wow. That sounds really amazing. Can you tell me the title of the book and the author again? Francoise Dalto and it's called Dominique, The Case of an Adolescent. Thank you so much, Jameson. Thank you. That was Jameson Webster. Her latest book is Disorganization and Sex. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM. We now return to our conversation with Jordan Stein, author of Rip Tales. It strikes me that in the book, there's kind of like two... Because you're 
Even though the rose is not the main focus, of course, it looms over Estacada and, and the book, that there's kind of like two modes in the book. There's like the more monumental mode, which is the rose, which is also to some degree like the Ruth Asawa fountain that you write about, although it's made of this very ephemeral material, the baker's clay. And then there's someone, another artist who I've always been curious about, someone like Lutzbacher, who's making, you know, things that aren't really objects at all, or, you know, they're very ephemeral, they're installations, and then they're gone. I would never understand how anyone would be able to sell a Lutzbacher work. It always seemed tricky. And, and she just seems like such a, such a different artist than DeFeo in a way. I would never have thought of her as quite like a materialist on the level of DeFeo at all. So I, I found it really interesting that you are connecting people who on the surface might seem like they're making very different work, but you find this through line. I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. In one sense, it was, it was intuitive. You know, it started with a list of artists that maybe resonated or sort of vibrated at a similar frequency to this particular DeFeo inquiry. I mean, I knew I wasn't doing a study of the rose. And when I came upon Estocada and followed the breadcrumbs, it just seemed to be a way to talk about process more than anything. And, you know, someone like Lutzbacher, who was not in the same room for many years working with potentially toxic pagan, making a huge painting and putting it on the wall, is one of the great composting artists, as far as I'm concerned. And in fact, at Cushionworks, this art space that I run in the mission, I presently have a Lutzbacher work that's on view for just another couple of days, actually. And not that we need to be telling all kinds of stories about Lutzbacher, but it involves something that she found. She was a great finder of things and a real magician in a lot of ways and could transform meaning and material with very delicate and sort of deft gesturing. So she gave her friend, Tamara Friedman, who lives here, a photograph, a framed photograph of an Indian guru that she found many years ago. And it's really odd and the frame's kind of junky and it really does need to be cleaned. And she said, why don't you just hold on to this, you know? Don't clean it. Just hold on to it. And she was often giving these things away. She would call them gifts. She would give gifts. And they were sort of halfway between an artwork and a keepsake and something people didn't quite know what to do with. And then the story goes that 15 years later, she finds a life-size cutout of Michael Myers as Dr. Evil from Austin Powers, this huge thing. This Dr. Evil character happens to be wearing the same sort of peculiar suit coat collar that the guru was wearing 15 years earlier. And although she hasn't seen the guru in some time, she says to Tamara, this is for you. This Austin Powers Dr. Evil is for you. Whatever you do, just put it right next to the guru. And so they live there as this kind of informal artwork. And of course, it's goofy and it's funny and it's silly. But, you know, if you squint, it's really about the manifestation and the imaging of good and evil. I mean, it, can, it really can be profound in certain ways. And it is dumb. And she had a great way of making something metaphysically and ontologically so powerful and the butt of a joke at the same time. And she relied on her senses out in the world to really collect stuff to help her do that. So that was interesting to me. And then some artists were just 
I guess, more natural or sort of intuitive fits. And with someone like Ruth Asawa, like you said, I wrote about, or I interviewed one of her daughters for the book about a really special bronze fountain that exists in San Francisco that Ruth made with the help of many, many family members and community members. But before it was cast in bronze, it was made from a special kind of slurry of uh, flour and water. So it was this very, you know, curious material that was profoundly destructible. And so there was something really interesting to me about building something that would stand the test of time really from a material that you could just conjure up in the kitchen. I also thought the example of this Bruce Connor painting. So Bruce Connor, who was the one who took the famous film of the Rose leaving Jada Feo's apartment, gives his friend this painting. It seems like some, kind of despite his gallery, like he doesn't want to <laughs> yeah. sell it. He doesn't want to sell it to someone who's just going to like resale it on a secondary market. So he gives it to his friend and he lets it sit in the backyard. And the painting does start to disintegrate. And he was fully aware that it would. And maybe he was inspired by DeFeo in doing that as a gesture. But yet, even as this painting is starting to come apart, it's like its material life is still ongoing. So his friend is like collecting all the little pieces because it's been exposed to the elements for many years. All these pieces of canvas are starting to flake off. The friend collects the pieces of canvas and puts them in a bag. The frame still exists on this fence. It's like, I thought that the book did such a beautiful job of kind of showing, of course, through Estacada as well, the way that, you know, we think of artworks as singular things, but actually they're composites of all their varying materials and that you can't exactly freeze frame the original artwork and say that once you know, it's not that any longer, it's not still something. The emphasis on both like the material and the ephemeral nature of work was such a striking combination for me in the book. Mm, great, I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, I think you're right that we're used to thinking of artworks as singular artifacts. I think we're used to thinking of artists as singular people. We're used to thinking of museums as singular places. We're used to thinking of life as a singular thing. And I think that none of that stuff is singular. And I think that a story like the Bruce Connor painting, you know, really deteriorating, composting itself in a lot of ways, and then being recollected and reconstituted, just sort of blasts open the frame of what it is to give life to material. And that's not the only thing that artists do, but that's really often what artists do. And the fact that the frame of Bruce's painting still sits in the backyard with no canvas in it anymore because it's all been eaten away by time and the weather and things is a really powerful statement about the micro and the macro in art and about where one should focus one's gaze, how you should spend your time and attention, and maybe more than anything, how absence is a very profound type of presence. I think this is a really annoying question I'm about to ask, but I'll ask just in case, because I'm married to an artist, I've written about art, all this stuff is kind of like second nature for me and it's very compelling, clearly. That's what I've devoted a lot of my life to. But I think for people that don't have so much art in their lives, it might sound very esoteric. 
And they might wonder like, why should I care? What does this have mm -hmm. to do with anything else yeah. in the world? And I wonder, again, I think it's an annoying question, but like, why should all the things we're talking about matter to someone who doesn't care about art? <laughs> That's a good question. And I don't think it's a necessarily hard question, but it is a question that I'm hesitant to try to answer because not being an art historian, not being a journalist, not being a museum director, not being a fundraiser, I feel like in a sense, I'm off the hook from having to do that. And I think that there were many ways to write this book or assemble this book. And, you know, it's funny, I shared a draft with a friend of mine who, who is a journalist and an excellent one. And he said, you know, I think you need to do more work in contextualizing who these people are and why we should care about them. And so I did another draft and I added in some more information. And he sort of said, is that, is that all you want to do there? Are you sure you don't want to go the distance? As if each chapter was its own sort of work of art that should have you know, museum wall label next to it that said, here's what's going on in this chapter. Here's some things to keep an eye out for. And here's what you should pay attention for and things like that. And I just couldn't, I couldn't bear doing it. And so on the one hand, I am a booster. I am a booster for the arts. I am a booster for community. It is really important to me to continue to run my space here in San Francisco. And there's nothing that I like more than inviting people into the space and into a conversation for the first time who've never been here. And I love telling stories, obviously. But I found that if I really went all in on trying to explain why these artists are important and what the glue is that holds these ripped tails together, then I would somehow be undoing the knot I was trying to tie. And I hope that that doesn't sound like I'm trying to wiggle my way out of something. I just thought, well, look, if I do my job, I've got to just cross my fingers and hope that this translates you know, to somebody. And maybe more than anything, I thought, if I really am attempting to learn more from these artists than anybody else and really hold the torch, then maybe I should work as hard as I possibly can to retain some of the, the withholding that I think is required for genuine works of art to sing. Because essentially, artists turn to their medium because they can do things there that they can't do anywhere else. A painting communicates in a way that a short story doesn't. A film works in a way that a drawing can't, and on and on. So I just thought, well, what can I do in this book that I couldn't do anywhere else, and how do I want to take advantage of that? Well, that's a great answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and important, and it does seem like something of the spirit of Estacada forms the book in that you are essentially kind of working with fragments that aren't overly explained. When did the form come? I was lucky to work with a, a publisher called Julia Klein, who runs Sober's Cove Press from Chicago. She's herself an artist and a real sort of materials forward one. And she's a DeFeo fan. And I had just told her, it was not a book pitch, you know, that I was in the archive and I was sort of unraveling this really neat tale. And she said, well, hey, if you ever want to turn it into a book, let me know. And I thought, well, that's so, what a generous idea, but you know, it's impossible. I could never figure out how to do that. I'd never written something that was quite so long. And, and I knew that my 
my thinking was somewhat braided and I didn't know how I would ever accomplish something like that. I mean, it's one reason why I like curating shows because there can be so many conversations happening at the same time, depending on where you turn. It's not fixed. So eventually I came across, I guess I was inspired to think beyond DeFeo and reached out to Julia and said, you know, what do you think if this is a bigger story and it's not just DeFeo, comma, other artists, comma, other artists, et cetera, but it really gets at something that I think is fundamental, what it is about being a Bay Area artist and what's fundamental about this particular work or series of works, you know, called Estocada. And she was very giving and very generous and upfront said, look, we'll do, uh, sounds like it's going to take some time and it's going to take some puzzling, you know, through, but but I'm committed to doing it. And then I worked with an amazing editor called Claudia LaRocco, who is herself a great writer. And she was the person who actually first proposed to me that I had all these different chunks, you know, and sections and things, but she was the first person who said, why don't you scramble things? Why don't you start with DeFeo, go to another artist, come back to DeFeo and sort of keep jumping around with the idea being, you're telling a story about fragments, why don't you echo that stylistically and formally, which admittedly I thought was just not going to work at all. And then I started to do it and sent it to her and she said, you know, this thing, this thing is really much more in focus than it's ever been. So we went with that. Nice. Yeah. I think the form works so well in telling one story, but then kind of really expanding it without having to do right a lot of explanation about what the larger thesis is, you kind of show us without telling us. And I think that something in the book, I'm really, really haunted by this idea of the lost archive, the lost object, by all the people who I know whose work has been lost over the years for you know thousands of reasons. You're reminded of that when you do find like a large archive of someone, for instance, in your book, you write about April Dawn Allison. This is a person who dressed as a woman and photographed themselves, probably like thousands and thousands of photographs. And they're amazing. I think I've seen them around kind of recently, but it was someone who was fairly, they were a commercial photographer in their day job. They were not an artist. It's like this whole amazing archive could have been lost. And there's just so many people like that. And even within DeFeo's work, we see like, oh, you know, the rose could have been lost. Are you haunted by that? Do you feel like somehow, you know, the material bears out somehow, like, because if something exists, somehow it goes into the compost? Like, how do you rationalize or kind of face this question that there are possibly so many absences we're not even aware of? I find it really frightening, to be honest. And um, even when I was much younger, going through family photographs or, you know, a grandparent would die and what do you do with these photo albums? It just became known that I was going to take all the stuff. You know, the stuff was going to come home to me and I was going to establish some sort of archive for it. I don't know how to necessarily shrink down why that is. I hope that it hasn't been too damaging or problematic in my life as a modus operandi. But I think that art history is written by the winners, and I think that economics has a whole lot to do with it. And so in any given 
city, I think there are many, many people who are up to really interesting things that perhaps don't fit into an Instagram square or rectangle, or they're not motivated to publish things for various reasons. And it's very exciting to me to come into contact with artists like that, archives like that, because it gets me a step closer to what it means to be an artist in the absence of anybody caring. And I think that that, you know, you asked me earlier, why should anyone care about these artists? And I, I kind of pushed off the question, but, you know, maybe it's worth saying that in an overly professionalized and hyper-capitalistic and capital C careerist art world and moment, you know, I think folks who are able to develop their practice, whether it's in or out of a studio, in the relative absence of being noticed, let alone being celebrated, are a model for what most inspires me and what I hope inspires other people. Because artist has come to mean so many different things. So has curator, but I guess that's another story. And I just think that these folks are heroes. Not to sound silly, but I just think they're giants. Even if literally nobody has seen this stuff. We're not aware that when Alan Schaefer got home from work and became April Dawn Allison and photographed himself as a French maid or a woman going to a high society party thousands and thousands of times, like you said, we really can't be sure that another living person ever saw those photographs or ever met April Dawn Allison. And I just think that is astonishingly powerful. And it's really just through luck. Well, you know, something I think about all the time is, is the notion of luck and this idea that chance favors the prepared mind. So I am constantly living my life trying to be prepared to get lucky. It's because a really fantastic painter called Andrew Masulo, who could have easily been in this book, Bay Area painter has been at it for many decades, had a great interest in the curious and the ephemeral and made his presence known in various estate sales, garage sales around town. And so somebody had the good thought to call Andrew and say, from an estate sale, you know, liquidation garage, and say, we don't know what to do with these things, all these photographs, they've been in storage for years, we think you might be interested. And not only was he interested, but he developed an incredibly personal relationship with the images, invented his own cataloging system for them, and eventually donated the whole lot to the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. That kind of story, you know, that that can happen, that the wheels and tides of history and, you know, can be aligned, I think really shows me, it not only gives me enthusiasm to sort of keep looking around, but it also breaks my heart because it shows you how often the planets are drastically out of alignment. I mean, that must be the norm, of course. So we just do what we can. And I think that art and artists are are so critical, you know, for so many reasons, but just like Lutz and just like making that, that joke, just like turning artwork on its head. I think at the same time, it's really important to wonder what it does all mean. What is this about? What can art do? 
Why are we attracted to it? Can it change anything? Can it change us? I mean, I don't know. The jury's out on a lot of these, these most biggest of questions, but they keep me busy. Yeah, and rightly so. And you've written a really beautiful book, so. Oh, thanks, Kate. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Jordan Stein. His latest book is Rip Tales, Jada Feo's Escatada and Other Pieces. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ji-Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vladimir.